This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing more 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pob, and with me I have a In the Finest Hour Invasion. Invasion? Invasion. <laughs> a coup? Uh, um, uh, we shunted annexation. in, John. We shunted in. Mm, yes. <laughs> Deep strike. So, of course, I have with me Mr. Sean Abuse Puppy and Mrs. Shale or Miss Shaylin uh, from In the Finest Hour. Say hi, everyone. Hey. Howdy, howdy. Also, the whole Mrs. Miz thing is total bullshit, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. How would you like to be referred to? Shaylin. This? Shaylin. Got it. And <laughs> Shaylin. Uh, the uh, Lady of Titan. I'll go with that. that that's one go. I've seen. Boom. All right. So for today's episode, uh, it was supposed to be a quick episode today. I am in the middle of BAO preparation for Frontline Gaming, uh, getting the secondhand shop ready, answering customer service emails uh, after hours and all that jazz. So I'm actually pretty busy. Uh, So today was supposed to be a quick episode, but I fear that might not be because we have a topic that we're going to talk about. And we have seven tournaments that we're going to talk about this weekend as well. And Val and Peter are nowhere to be found. Well, Peter has a good excuse. Val, uh, I guess they both do. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they both have their own separate life things to deal with, uh, which means that we're not going to have a 40k stat center or any tournament coverage this week, except on Chapter Tactics. So I decided to just cover it all this weekend, bite the bullet, be up till like 2 a.m. answering emails and getting the work done, because hmm. that is that is what I do for you. Well, I mean, I'm going to blame Josh. Yeah, there you go. You usually do. <laughs> uh, so today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking briefly about the upcoming BAO. There's a really good article in Frontline Gaming I liked personally reading, and I wish we had more articles like this. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, and leading up to the event, and also what uh, Sean and Chaylin, I believe you're going to the BAO too? I am not. Oh, man. Uh, anyways, There's this thing what... called Work Rocket has crushed me this season. I know, it's crushing me right now, but you, you're... You, I, I work weekends literally, Pablo. Yes, that's that's rough. That is, is absolutely rough. I agree. I worked one weekend this month and I hated it. But Sean will be going. We're going to be talking about his mm-hmm. list. Uh, we're also going to be talking about some similarities uh, that I've been pulling lately. I've been really into chess, uh, and there's actually a lot of similarities in positioning and efficiency and getting the most out of your units, uh, depending on how you position them. Um, so we're going to talk about unit efficiency and getting the most out of your units. Uh, I think there's actually a lot of good stuff in there. Um, so we're going to talk about that 
And then finally, we're going to be talking about all these tournaments. And like I said, seven tournaments. We're going to try and get through those as quickly as possible. But there is some definite interesting stuff in there, including an undefeated Necron list, uh, which is <laughs> which is rare that those don't happen very often. So they're, they're more common than undefeated Grey Knight lists. That's true. They they are more common uh, than undefeated Grey Knight. I would lists. actually say they are exactly as common as each other. Ooh, that's like there, saying there is one of each of them. <laughs> that's like saying presently, pink. but they're historically more Necrons than Grey Knights. That's that's like saying pink unicorns are more rare than regular unicorns. Yet I think yeah. you'd be happy to see either one in real life. Yes. Be, maybe not happy. Maybe surprised. That's I'd be happy. A word. You'd be happy. Okay. I mean, unless we're talking like Gravity Falls unicorns, who are all assholes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Before we get on to the episode, uh, first, this episode is brought to you by the Boise Cup, coming in at the end of the month in June next month. It's coming up quick. Uh, also brought to you by the Throne of War GT in beautiful, sunny Honolulu, Hawaii, where Sean and myself will be attending. Uh, mm-hmm. And finally, brought to you by Frontline Gaming. Go to the Bay Area Open. Go to Kublai Khan if you're going to be in the area. Should be a lot of fun. This should be the biggest Bay Area Open ever, um, according to Reese. It's going to be a full four-day, four three-day event with a top eight breaking breaking down into a top eight and streamed. It should be crazy. It should, that's, what they're, that's what they're planning, so... Be, it'll we, be bigger than before. Go ahead. Do we know what the, the number of players is currently at? Um, You know, I don't know, though. I'm sh- I know it's we're adding more every day because I, I just added a bunch of people today. Oh, okay. Um, so I know we're adding more. Uh, I guess there was supposed to be like an update with BCP or, or something. I don't know. Huh. Um, so there, there's more and more people. We will definitely get a precise number uh, over the weekend, obviously, when the sure, edit starts, but, I would hope so. but look for <laughs> look for around two hundred plus people. Wow, that's I pretty think it's probably is probably what we're all shooting for. Uh, I also know that there are size limitations that were previously not there, uh, so I don't actually hmm. know the specifics. And I think it's uh, kind of we're trying to figure out what because this is our first year that we're at the Kublacon, and sure. it's also in moved up to uh, May instead of normally it's in July. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a learning process for us, too. So hopefully the video coverage turns out really well. But yeah, about 200 people, I think, is probably fair. That's still so that was, quite big. <laughs> yeah. And that was about as much as the year I first went was they were trying to sell 200 tickets. I thought, thought they sold like about 186 is how many actually showed up. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's also another – we'll talk about it, like I mentioned earlier, the article. Um, but there's also a lot of really good players going to this year's BAO. Um, usually – Historically, there's always a lot of really good players going to the BAO, but I think I feel like this year it's it's even crazier. Like mm-hmm. you know. Um, anyways, so we're gonna talk about that, and then finally, this episode is brought to you by you, the patrons, the beautiful, amazing patrons who month after month ask me to create a Discord channel, and I say I'm going to do it, and I never do because I'm too busy. You patrons are the real MVPs. Thank you so much. And, of course, as a thank you, I'm going to be giving one of you lucky patrons a free High Roller LVO package. If you're attending the LVO, it means you will have your ticket paid for. Um, not your airplane ticket, your regular convention and probably 40k chance ticket. Uh, and, of course, you get a lot of awesome swag. If you're not going to the LVO, I'm still going to send you basically a giant box of delicious con stuff with con exclusives, games, Anything we throw in there in the high roller package, and anything I find as well at the LVO. So you might get like random dice, maybe a painted model uh, that I couldn't find the owner to. I don't know. I'm just going to send you a bunch of stuff. 
All right. Well, one lucky patron is going to win that. And look for that to be announced on the first episode of June or the first Monday of June. All right. Let's get to the tournament coverage. So, like I said, there were a lot of tournaments this past weekend that happened. There were seven, to be exact. And the first one we're going to talk about was the Alamo GT. So, the Alamo GT was won by Mr. Matthew Ali. Uh, with a thousand suns list, yeah, he had uh, rubric marines, and this is the rubric marines list that people have been seeing a lot of, or maybe not seeing a lot of lately. But there was a rubric marines list that did well that surfaced in the past recently, and I think it was also Matthew Lee who ran that list. Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of exciting because rubric marines aren't exactly the pinnacle of competitive 40k. Well, uh, maybe weren't. But maybe weren't. Maybe they are now. They've they've gained a lot recently. Yeah, and so he had a battalion, a Thousand Suns battalion with Aramon on the disc and a Sorcerer and Terminator armor, which is another becoming another popular Terminator or another popular pick because the Sorcerer and Terminator armor, uh, with three units of five Rubik Marines with warp plane pistols and staffs, uh, and then a second battalion with two Sorcerers and Terminator armor, and uh, another three units of five Rubik Marines, and then finally a third Thousand Suns detachment with two Demon Princes each. Five more rubric marines to bring your total up to 35 marines, uh, and then two Zangor bombs, one unit of 30, and one unit of 26. And that is it. That is the simplest Thousand Suns list you will ever see. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of pretty resilient bodies uh, that all have AP2 weapons, and then a lot of super, super strong spellcasting. Yeah, no, uh, the thing to note about Thousand Suns is they ignore the clicker, like Grey Knights do. And Rubric Marines has that whole ignore minus ones unless it's a multi-damage shot. Uh, they they actually get plus one to their save against weapons which are only single damage, is specifically how it was. Which so is really good. Yes, if you are sitting in cover with them against a single damage weapon, like, a, say, a heavy bolter, you still have a two-up save. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. Yeah. And cool. Yeah, and so and so, what I imagine what Matt does is he puts everything in reserve that he can, the Zangor bombs, uh, and then just hides the Rubik Marines all over the place and puts the characters everywhere, and then mm-hmm. just slowly takes over the board while putting like twenty mortal wounds a turn on you and smites or whatever yeah. it adds up to. It's pretty and, crazy. And it's don't underestimate those Rubik main units in shooting either, because each of them is putting out uh, eight or nine AP two shots. Uh, even on the move, so they're they're pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll see more Rubric Marines. Uh, in second place, we had the undefeated Necron list I talked about earlier. Antonio Sedano or Sedano, uh, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Antonio Tony uh, was running uh, Necron list that I've actually seen used down here in San Diego. Uh, mm-hmm. Player down here uses lists that are kind of similar to it. He's got uh, Sawtech. Air Ring Detachment with three Doom Scythes, another Sawtech deta- Battalion with Emotech, an Overlord, three units of ten mo- Tesla Carbine Immortals, a uh, big unit of ten Tomb Blades, and then finally a Spearhead with three Doomsday Arcs and a Cryptech, also Sawtech. So, mm-hmm. first off, the Tomb Blades are really, really good at, at killing hordes and, and just being fast yeah. and dealing with a lot of things. The... I found them when I've played against them to be people's ace, discreetly ace in the hole in Necron lists. It's like, you're not very good, but your Tomb Blades are actually kicking my ass. I have to deal with them now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and all the, the Tesla units put out a lot of firepower 
especially when you start buffing them up with my will be done for that plus one to hit, so you, you proc Tezlon fives. Um, that is not only really good at tearing up infantry, but it'll also force a ton of saves onto stuff like knights, and can actually do a surprising amount of damage there. Yeah, and I'd love to see this Necron list actually get matched up against this Thousand Suns list. I think the Thousand Suns list still has the edge because of the smites, but those three Doom sites mm-hmm. with the stratagem, uh, where they you pick a point um, that all the three of the Doom sites can see, and then every unit within six inches of it or something gets dealt like three D three mortal wounds on a four up or something like that. It's yeah. it's absolutely silly. Um, if those Doom sites go first, they can pretty much at turn one anywhere on the board drop a ton of mortal wounds in one spot in your army which really really hurts gunline armies uh like tau uh astromilitarum who like to hide their characters in there basically if you like to they're they're very good at punishing bubble armies yes Um, it's it's the necron version of the the line breaker bombardment and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i was gonna put out is you don't actually have to see the units they're targeting with it the point just has to be visible Uh, so if you're hiding behind something Oh, even better. It it does not need to be visible at all. You can do it without line of sight. This has to be in range. I know there's like a limitation. Yes, it there. must be within 24 inches, the range of the gun. Uh, but it does not need to be visible. Just as Imhotek's ability to do D6 mortal wounds does not need to be on a point you can see either. Well, that's just all right then. Yeah, it's yeah. just brutal. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, there, there's nowhere to hide. You're just in range and you die. Yes, it is surprisingly terrifying. Yeah, at, um, at 150 points of flyer, not terribly expensive. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's pretty cheap. Know, so, yeah, so um, it, it's good. I was gonna say you've got a you've got a, a a gun with multiple shots that does d6 damage, the two strength seven Teslas, and then the potential to give up your uh, your main gun in order to do that mortal wound stratagem. And you're probably not going to need to do it more than once because if you get to do it more than once, then there's just going to be nothing left. Yeah. Uh, and then in uh, third and fourth place, we had Andrew Ford and Josie Velasquez. Andrew Ford running a triple knight Imperium list, saying FAQ be damned, taking the Knight Castellan anyways. And then Joni running a Chaos Demon list with Rubric Marines as well as Havocs. And uh, mm-hmm. kind of an interesting list. So I do suggest going to 40kstats.com and checking out those lists as well if any of the lists or names strike your fancy or you want to know a little bit more about the tournaments go to 40kstats.com and then you can also check it out on bcp best coast pairings with a best coast pairings subscription all right moving on to the spring spring conflagration gt uh, there were 39 players, and they were using the Renegade Open missions. Uh, if you don't know what that means, we actually had an episode last week where we talked about the various mission formats that you can find around the world for competitive 40k events. The Alamo GT was 85 players and was using the ITC mission format. Spring Conflagration was using using the Renegade mission format. So if you're interested to know a little bit more about that, you can actually check last week's episode, and we break down all those mission formats uh, so this one was run by the famous Nick Nanavati using Gene Stealer Colts. Uh, this is I don't want to I don't want to say your typical Gene Stealer Colt list because there's really like two or three types of lists that people are running. Um, but this is the more infantry heavy version uh, with a lot of melee presence. So this is a Twisted Helix Battalion with a Patriarch and a Primus, three units of Blood 
Brood Brothers, uh, two units of ten aberrants with eight picks and two improvised weapons, and then your usual Biophagus with a familiar Nexos, all the good characters, an Icon Ward, uh, and then a four-armed Emperor Battalion with a Patriarch, a bunch of Acolytes, 20 Acolytes with 20 Hand Flamers, 17 Acolytes with four Rock Saws, and then 15 Acolytes with no upgrades except a Banner, uh, your Clamavis, your Kellermorph, and then finally uh, four-armed Emperor Battalion again, which is uh, your... Uh, your four armed 32 uh which is based <laughs> patriarch a primus and three units of 10 brood brothers so mm-hmm. all the characters and all the infantry troops it's if often known as the uh muscle beach list because of the two units of 10 aberrants is kind of the the central focus of the list oh okay i get it so yes. they're just like broing like bro yeah, yeah. look at my muscles bro bro, bro have you <laughs> seen my gains bro <laughs> Uh, it, it's a man. <laughs> it's an interesting. It's an interesting list. Uh, I'd love to see Nick Donavati use it. Um, I, I know that Jeff isn't too high on Gene Sierra Colts right now, although they are still good. Um, they just can be very dicey. Although Nick Donavati is known for being very lucky, uh, as part of also being very good. It's true. He's is famously known for being very good and just getting certain roles that just happen, and he just gets them. Um, just, you know, just the way it is. Some people are just also lucky as well as being good. Uh, anyways, uh, that doesn't take anything away from him. It still probably takes a lot of skill to run this list. Um, I certainly would not enjoy playing a list like this. Uh, having, you know, 50 plus bodies that can take up out most of most armies in close combat, um, is really hard to deal with on top of all the characters, uh, you know, like your Keller Morph, your, your, uh, Patriarchs do a lot of work mm-hmm. um it's just a lot of buffs and a lot of really nasty things in there yeah uh i think one of the features that sticks out to me is the triple patriarch um for his cost that guy is incredibly efficient uh, just swinging i think six times uh with multi-damage on all of them really good rending all that kind of stuff yeah. Uh, and then in second place, we had Mr. Tyler DeVries. Tyler, um, I don't want to say he's been taking a break from 40k, although it definitely feels like he has. He was he was in a lot of top fours last year in 8th edition. I remember playing him at the Iron Halo. Um, mm-hmm. But he has since um, taken a step back away from competitive 40k. I don't know if he's going to be making a comeback or if this is his deal. But it's so funny, was I saw his list, I was like, oh, okay, it's Tyler. I wonder what he's running. He was basically running the same thing he was running like two years ago. Uh, so he's got a Katachan Brigade with Strachan, Company Commanders, Astropath, uh, Officer of the Fleet, 9 Bulgren, or 8 Bulgren, sorry. Um bunch of guardsmen, uh, six units of infantry squads, uh, three Rough Riders, and three by three mortars to fill out that brigade. Uh, and then a Blood Angels battalion with two Smash Captains and 15 scouts. And then an Order of the Bloody Rose Outrider battalion with 106, with Celestine, a Canonist, and three units of seven Seraphim and a Preacher. And this is the, this is the kind of list he's actually been running since 8th edition began. He, he switched over from the brigade because it used to be an Imperium, mixed Imperium brigade with like Venrigian wolves and, and little tiny min units and Celestine. So he changed that to a Katachan brigade. He's still running the Blood Angels with the Smash Captain and he's still running Celestine and like a 20 plus Seraphim bodies. Mm-hmm. So it's just really interesting to see someone who who's kind of taken a step away a little bit from 40k come back with a similar list to what he was running two years ago and still do well with it going 4-1. Uh, Tyler's also a really good player too. Yeah, 
Uh, of note, those Seraphim, for 113 points, you get four Meltaguns. That's mm-hmm. a pretty good deal. And yeah. hanging near Celestine, they are potentially uh, rocking a four-up or even three-up invuln. Yeah, the, and the reason why most people have moved away from them, because they were more well, common. Oh, go ahead, Shailen. I was going to comment. He didn't state who his warlord was. Uh, yeah, we don't. Oh, no, no, it's one of the Blood Angel guys. Never oh, yeah, yeah, it's right here. The warlord. Anyways, um, the the reason why people have been moving away from the Seraphim is because they lost their ability to, to double move. Um, mm-hmm. which is really what they were really good at. They could double move, uh, lock something in combat because they were three up invuln save cheap, or not three up invuln save, three up armor save cheap bodies that were fast. So they could like tie up vehicles and stuff. And then they could also just wrap a character and just beat them down with pistols or blow them up with inferno pistols. So they're really good at character sniping, move blocking, all that stuff. Um, they obviously don't have the double move anymore. Um, so I think that they are worse, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how... Tyler uses them, you know, now that they've been nerfed, and he's basically still using them, I imagine, the same way? I don't know. So. I'm going to point out their models with, like, basically a 4-up invulnerable save that moved 12 inches a turn, and that is pretty gnarly right there. Yeah, and 4 Meltaguns. That's yeah. also Yeah, he's got enough saturation with the bodies that the squads don't just keel over and lose their Meltaguns. Yeah. Yeah, the... Anyways, it's a good list. Uh, and then we had Nick Vice with uh, a Night Crusader, three Night Crusaders. So this is the triple Night Crusader. Um, he's House Tyrannus instead of the House Crass that you normally see. Uh, and then he has a Knight Valiant in a second detachment. And I believe that's his list, just four knights. So yep. N- Nicholas Vice, Vice running, running hot. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, he straight up throws 10 points in the garbage because he has nowhere to spend it. Uh <laughs> But uh, yeah, the he he puts uh, Hawk Shroud on the Knight Valiant, which is a trick a number of people picked up on recently. It lets you heroically intervene, uh, or essentially heroically intervene, up to twelve inches and fire Tau style supporting Overwatch for units. And with that three d six flamer, that is pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, Kyle Thompson coming in fourth place, uh, running a Mar- mostly a Mars. Uh, Astro Militarum Brigade. Um, with if you've been uh, listening to this podcast, not Militarum. I'm sorry, uh, Astro uh, Adeptus Mechanicus. Mechanicus. Yeah, excuse me, um, Adeptus Mechanicus Brigade. One of these is very much not like the other. <laughs> I don't know, Rusty um, Seventeen, Loyal Thirty Two. They're basically the yeah, same. You're right, totally. All the Imperium lists are the same. Um, I agree. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, so he's got uh, the kind of the usual suspects that you see now. So if you've been listening to this podcast. For most of this year, um, you know, you'll you'll hear us reference back to kind of the rise of Admech lists, and Admech are starting to do really well. They had a strong showing at the LVO and have since um, had multiple top fours. I think they've even had a couple GT wins. Um, but basically, it's just been on the back of Catafron Breachers, Castellan Robots, and uh, Iron Striders. Are the yeah the Iron Striders? And um, are- it's basically. Oh no! I was not say, those are not That's the dragoons. The, the no, dragoons he is... are more common, right? Yes, dragoons are the melee ones. Iron striders are the shooting ones. You don't typically see the iron striders. Yeah. Uh, but if you're doing a brigade like he is, then they gain a lot more value because you can hang back with the other shooting units and kind of force people to ignore them. Yeah. Oh, I see. He found the uh, twenty, po- the sixty points of backfield units. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the servitors. Uh, Oh, I use that in my Grand Knights list. Oh, those are not backfield good. units, in fact. 
Um, so the thing with them is uh, he can you he he has a uh, I think it's a warlord trait or maybe it's a relic that can turn them into breachers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You you basically lobotomize or, or cannibalize their servitors, and yep. you you basically like okay breacher, take the dead baby off and put the you know servo yes. or whatever they are. Yeah. I don't know the you know whatever the servitors are the the dead human thing. Yes. Put it on on you the can, thingy. Yeah, and you can you, you can rebuild a damaged unit of cataphrons using servitors as like sacrificial pawns. They and you're also not wrong. They also make great backfield holding units because they are incredibly cheap and fill an elite slot. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a double use there. But anyway, so he's he's using the admech list uh, admech brigade with uh, knight warden for flavor thrown in there. Um, so congratulations <laughs> to all of you. Flavor, yeah, you know, nice. Fiery flavor, smoky. Uh, uh-huh. Anyways, um, moving on to the. I believe the flavor is <laughs> flavor Mars Mars flavored pain. Uh, okay, uh, the Caledonian Mayhem. Caledonian Mayhem was also this weekend. Eighty-five players using the ITC format. Uh, Mr. Malik Rubio uh, came in first place with Adeptus Custodes. Um, he says Adeptus Custodes, but it was really an Imperium list. So Imperial Soup, Imperium, whatever you want to call it, uh, multi-faction Imperium list is, I believe, what uh, the proper term is now, according to Stat Center. Um, yeah. So <laughs> he has a battalion detachment with uh, two tank commanders and a company commander. The tank commanders have our Punisher tank commanders with plasma cannons and a single LAS cannon. Uh, th- three units of thirty or three units of ten guardsmen, one Knight Crusader in a super super heavy auxiliary crass detachment, and then a shield captain on a Don Eagle jet bike, a Vexilla Praetor, and three Caladius Grav tanks. So th- this is kind of kind of just a different flavor of what uh, Jeff and Control was running at the Battle for LA. Um, the Grav tanks with the shield captain and the Praetor are absolutely insane. Um, they just they put out a ton of efficient shots. They're really hard to kill because they're minus one to hit, uh, and they're backed by a Knight Crusader and two tank commanders who are going up in popularity. A lot of people are running more and more tank commanders. Uh, these are the Punisher versions, mm-hmm. so I imagine that's for chap clearing and um, moving up the board and kind of just keeping people off of those Caladius Grav tanks. Yeah, the the Caladius and and Crusader will do a really great job at killing heavier targets because it's the the usual crass Crusader, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the tank commanders can clear anything that starts to get too close and maybe gives you a bad time. Yeah. Or then you got screens just to be inconvenient. Yep. Done. Yeah, yeah. The, the these are units that are very hard to kill. Um, you know, if, if in in uh, heavy amounts. Because, um, you know, it's hard to kill the Caladius Grav Tanks plus a Knight plus two Lehman Russes. Um, so it's a good list. Anyway, so Malik, congratulations for getting first place. Um, also undefeated was Mr. Marcus Hinson uh, running Imperial Knights, uh, though this was also an Imperium multi-faction detachment. So he had a Nastro Militarum Battalion with two company commanders, two infantry squads, and one Tempestus Scion squad with a single plasma gun, two heavy weapon mortar teams, and then an Admech Battalion with two tech, uh, uh, kind of rusty, rusty 17, 17 Admech yep. <laughs> Gryia Detachment. Uh, and then a three Triple Crusader House Tyrannus as well. So instead of House Crash, he's going House Tyrannus, but Triple Knight Crusader, and then that's it. And then with an Assassin. And an Assassin, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is a Which pretty typical Imperial shooting list. Is like you have the the Triple Crusader and then uh, the the kind of basic guys to feed command points and hold the board. Um, it is notable he spends a little bit more for those extra heavy weapon teams in the the mortar squads, as well as he's putting the uh, Arquebus, the sniper rifle, into two of his squads of uh, Skitari troops. <clears throat> All right, so, and then uh, Anthony Chu came in uh, third place with an Azuryani, or uh, Azuryani is mixed to Eldar, right? Okay. Yes. Uh, with an, or is it, is so Azuryani actually It's mixed Eldar. Azuryani is pure craft worlds, which he is. Okay. Okay, so he's a, a, with a craft world Eldar detachment. Um, a lot of things with the fly keyword. Uh, he has a, a flyer wing Everything. detachment, three crimson hunters, and two hemlock wraith fighters, uh, three night wings, which I, I will not even pretend I know what they do. Um, uh, the night wing is one of the forge world flyers. It's a little bit weird. Uh, it comes with a pair of bright lances and a pair of shuriken cannons. Um, and it has a wacky mode because it's like a if you if you remember the 80s and all the sort of like swing wing fighters like the F14 and whatnot, uh-huh. it has that gimmick going on. So it can switch between two modes, uh, one where it's more maneuverable and one where it gets a five up invuln. Oh, the, yeah, that's the that's the flyer with the wings that that go back and forth. Yep. On the, the thing, if you go to Forge World, look at that. It's actually a pretty cool looking flyer. It's neat. Um, it's it's an interesting solution because it has a little bit more DACA than the uh, the basic uh, craft world flyers from the uh, Codex do. So it, it allows you to clear out troops a little more efficiently. Uh, <clears throat> and then finally, James McKinsey coming in fourth place using no, the you forgot you forgot the second half uh, of this totally list, which is, oh, uh, which is a three fire and, prisms. Yes, Farseer yeah, and three fire Skyrimer. prisms. Yep. So it's a lot of. <laughs> Things with the fly keyword um, that are minus one to hit because I believe they're all light talk as well. Of course they are. There is no other that craft would be minus world. Minus two. Yeah. So with the flyers, they're minus two. Uh, I'm sorry. With the uh, I forgot the new fly. What new? What we call aircraft. flyers now? Well, aircraft. they're still flyers. They're just also aircraft. Okay. Yeah. The five aircraft are minus two or minus three. Um, yeah. Whereas the rest of the the army is minus one or minus two. It's pretty good. A pretty good list. Um, I would hate to play a list like this. And then finally, Mr. James McKenzie coming in fourth place um, with your muscle, muscly Gene Circle list, but with two Vulture gunships, which are also finding themselves in Gene Circle lists. They're being mm-hmm. they're becoming very very popular. Um, and that's it for the Caledonian Mayhem. Yeah. Um. Just to to sort of quickly differentiate, he's running what I might call a slightly more traditional list compared to Nick Notavati's. He only has one unit of Aberrants, has a similar number of the Acolytes, uh, but he brings in the Vulture gunships and a few extra characters, as well as the Atlan Jackals and their Demo Charge Bomb, uh, to give him a few more options. Um, it definitely has a little bit weaker matchups in some places. Those Vulture gunships against heavy vehicle lists are not going to really do anything. But on the other hand, against things like orcs and other unit things that have a lot of infantry on the ground, they're going to be absolutely golden. Yep. Uh, and then uh, next up, the Storm of Silence GT uh, ITC mission format, 60 players. Uh, Mr. Zachary Nelson came in first place. Um, with in Azuryani, uh, pure, another pure Eldar. Oh, nope. nope, he's got Razorwing nope. Jet Fighters. He, he so is he's running Eldar. a mixed a mixed Eldar list uh, with 
th- two Crimson Hunters and a Hemlock Wraith Fighter, an Autox Skyrunner and a Farseer Skyrunner, Guardian Defenders, Rangers, and Storm Guardians, and a in a Lytok Battalion with Wraith Blades, which is kind of cool, but only five Wraith Blades, three Wave mm-hmm. Serpents tied all together, and a Cabal the Black Heart Airing Detachment with three Razor Wing Jet Fighters, because he couldn't help himself. Well, yeah, it's it's good. Uh, <laughs> I talked to him a little bit about it. He good. he said he was not happy with the Wraith Blades overall, so those are probably getting switched out, uh, but did at least serve some use during the tournament. They just didn't end up being quite what he wanted. Yeah, it feels like a unit of five, especially now that the Inari rules, as we've known them forever, um, are gone. Uh, you know, we had a Thank yeah, <laughs> we had a player down here um, who was doing really, really well with Wraith Blades and Wraith Guard, but only Inari versions. Um, and he was running mm-hmm. more than five in a squad and more more than yeah. one squad too. So, well, you know, only five fit inside a transport. That's why. Oh, that's why. Yeah. Well. Yes. Uh, but yeah, a really solid Eldar list. Congratulations, Zach, for getting in first place and being the only undefeated player. Um, we also had second place, Kristen yeah, Proxen. That's, that's uh, not technically true. There were there was a four zero and one, Kristen. Ooh, Kristen. Well, uh, excuse me for being the only five and zero player. Yes. Uh, Kristen, congratulations <laughs> for going undefeated as well. Um, you went undefeated with a with a Talonar supremacy suit, and I have to cough. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, a Talonar supremacy suit. Um, in a Tau list, a Tau Sept list, uh, with a Kadri Fireblade, Commander Shadow Sun, and three Strike Teams in a battalion, um, with two units of Stealth Suits, all with Burst Cannons, uh, and then a third battalion with another Kadri Fireblade, a Cold Star Battle Suit, with four Missile Pods, three more Strike Teams, and three units of four Shield Drones. Um, mm-hmm. so this is not yep. the normal Tau list that we've been seeing, like, uh, well, like, for example, Brian Pullen did really well. With a uh, with a different list um, recently, uh, and then there was also another good Tau list that I believe almost won the defeated of the battle for LA. That might have actually been Brian Pullen. I'm not sure. Brian no Brian Pullen was the broadside bash. Um, anyways, the the point is is that there are Tau lists that have been doing pretty well that haven't had storm surges. So I'm going to defer to Sean here. I, I don't know what's so special. He's not a storm surge. He, he, he meant I'm sorry, tides, supremacy but yes. suit. Um, yeah. So yeah. the thing about the supremacy suit. It does hit very hard. It's Bliska Skill 2-up, which is obviously quite rare in Tau. Um, it is a battle suit, so drones can soak wounds for it, despite being a huge Titanic, like, bigger-than-a-knight thing. Um, and it has a lot of really powerful guns on it. Um, it's got a damage form macro main weapon. His one is carrying ten multi-meltas, as well as four burst cannons and four smart missiles. Plus, it's not garbage in close combat. Um, it has knight-style dancing feet. Um, but it also has a lot of weaknesses. Um, it is not particularly strong in the stat line outside of that. Is uh, you know, it it's 30 wounds, but for a 1,200-point model, 30 wounds is not really all that many. And it's only 3-up armor, 5-up invuln. So you, it's not too hard to tick damage away on it if you're not actually hitting the drones. Um, so it's a very interesting choice. I'm honestly rather surprised he did get as high as he did, because all you have to do is touch it in close combat, and then it's not going to get to shoot. Uh, or more specifically, it won't get to shoot anything other than the unit that touched it. Um, so I'm I'm very surprised he managed to uh, fight his way through the Orc and Genestealer cult matchups, because there are quite a lot of those there. Um, so big props to him for doing so, but for those of you who are wondering if this is the future of Tau, 
Probably not. Yeah, and th this is one of those deals where I think if, if the tournament had gone one more round, uh, we'd probably have a different person in second place. Um, you know, because typically well be. these kind of lists lose in the, in, in the sixth round. Um, but kudos to Kristen for doing well with the list. Uh, and then Scott coming in third place with Orcs. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, your standard Orc list that you see with a Wazbomb Blastajet to mix things up and some Dacajets thrown in yeah. there. So, so kind of your... Your usual suspects, Ludas, uh, Big Mac, Scretchens, lots of bodies, lots of boys, uh, and then your weird boys, uh, and then two Daka Jets and a Wazbomb Blaster Jet, which I will not even pretend I, to know what they do. The Wazbomb or the Daka Jets? Uh, the Wazbomb Blaster Jet. The Daka Jets just um, have a lot of Daka. Yes, they, they throw a lot of shots. The Wazbomb is uh, kind of a weird little vehicle. It has a custom force field built onto it, um, like a big mech can normally get, so it's giving out a 5-up invuln to stuff. And then it also has a bunch of high AP guns that it carries, uh, which is fairly unusual for orcs. Mm. It's his anti-tank model. Yeah, among other things. It's like he's also, of course, got the the, uh, the upgraded shotgun and stuff like that. Uh, but it is... The three airplanes give definitely an interesting twist on some of the usual orc suspects. No. And then finally, uh, Ben Cromwell came in fourth place with uh, two Night Wardens and a Night Crusader in a House Crass detachment. Um, so that's kind of a, a interesting take on the triple Night Crusader. Uh, he instead decided to drop about 120 points uh, worth of rapid-fire battle cannons. I think it's probably more than that. It might be actually 200 points. Um, but instead, you know, put that in for uh, a rusty 17, but with Cataphron Breachers. So six Cataphron Breachers um, and two units of Sicarian Infiltrators and an Assassin. So um, instead of going three Night Crusaders and your normal Loyal 32 Plus Assassin, he went two Night Wardens, which are, you know, let's be honest, though, the Rapid Fire Battle Cannon isn't as efficient as the Chain Gun, uh, mm -hmm. the Gatling Cannon, so the Gatling Cannon is probably the better choice, and the Warden does technically do better against other Super Heavies, uh, and they're all house -crassed. Um So I actually kind of like this take on the Triple Crusader list. Um, it, it essentially comp accomplishes the same thing, but also gives you Catafront Breachers, a little more bodies, and Sicarian Infiltrators. Uh, or whatever else you want to add in if, you, if you're not feeling ad-back. So the one thing I was going to add here, he took his assassin in the outright um, elite's uh, auxiliary support mm -hmm. detachment rather than as uh, as the 2CP Yes, he, so he, has a, he has a legitimate Calidus assassin in the list, not a summoned assassin, which does save him CP. Yeah, it saves him one CP. And if, you're, if you know, the Calidus assassin is, is probably the best assassin. Um, I, I just know from personal experience and talking to other people, it's it's the one I most commonly pick and I see most commonly picked. Um, so if you know your list doesn't really need the other three assassins, uh, but you really want the Calidus, you you know you might as well just save yourself the CP. Yeah. Also notable as a uh, big player in his list is those Sicarian Infiltrators with the Flechette Blasters, which, because they are Mars, can put an insane number of mortal wounds onto something. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I believe they infiltrate or they deep strike. They deep strike. Uh, they deep strike, yeah. So they can drop down, clear screen. Um, so it's, it's a good list, and Ben's a really good player. Well, um, so and, I, and not even kill a clear screen. They can kill a knight. Oh. Because, so those, there's 10 of them. That's 40 shots. He pops the stratagem, so they're hitting on twos. 
and then pops another one so that every six to wound is a mortal wound. That is averaging, I think it's actually 50 shots, not 60, but that's averaging somewhere in the 10 to 12 mortal wounds. Ugh. Yeah. Plus his all his knights, all his normal stuff. Yes. That's brutal. It, Admech has a lot of really good stuff, you guys. <laughs> um, well, and Chapter Proof did make them pro- priced relatively properly now, and that's why they keep resurging, is because they are no longer yes. overcosted yeah. good stuff. Yeah, 180 points or something like that is, I, I'd say, is worth it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that Admech was the only army Chapter Proof outright hmm. fixed. I think. I think Tau, I think you could make an argument with Tau, but that sounds like a an episode for another Yeah, I was going to say, that's a... <laughs> Tau were broken before. They got better, it, but they weren't broken. There, there, there's a pretty big topic of discussion right in there. I don't think we want to spend huge. an hour getting into it. Yeah, I, I like that, though. Thanks thanks for showing initiative, Jalen. <laughs> um, okay, uh, moving on to Warzone Atomic Empire. Our very own Mr. Val Heffelfinger attended this event. Um, he did not do so hot. But he brought a good list, and someone did do well with his list. Um, so, you know, he, he did his best, and that's all we can ask. Um, and, and considering my term performances, I did no in no position to poke any more fun at him. So, Val, congratulations for attending an event and going out of your way to leave the frozen north and have a good time. All right, so Mr. Mark Hurtle came in first place with Adeptus Astardes. Um, which is what his, his list says it is, but it's really yeah. <laughs> another multi-faction Imperium list. Uh, by the way, PSA guys, you should probably start marking your lists correctly because uh, your lists won't count if they're a, marked as a Space Marine list, but they're really not a Space Marine list um, per the new. I suspect that's not going to be very well enforced, it's... Pablo, because BCP we guys shall are We shall see. Um, I, I know that there are implementations in place to change this but like all things it takes time so we'll see the point is is that if you are doing well at these events if you're going undefeated top fouring and all that stuff and your list is incorrectly marked uh people will you know say something and and Um, usually it's i was gonna i was gonna say this also i don't actually know i have not looked through bcp this may be a case of uh our good mr peter listing it as an adeptus astartes list despite it being listed as an imperium list in bcp mm, so maybe it's mr peter's fault that's okay I, i'll give him a break Could if be. it's peter's fault I don't know. and not mark mark i apologize um, I wasn't yeah. necessarily targeting say, you, Mark. Bef- before you call anyone out, uh, <laughs> consider what Peter has said on the show to you in the past. True. But I do still see a lot of people marking those incorrectly. Oh, that is sure. still something that happens. So yeah. make sure your lists are correct. Mark, on the other hand, uh, was running a mixed multi-faction Imperium list with a two Tech Priest Engineers and a Stygis Battalion with three or two Skatari Rangers and one unit of Skatari Vanguard and three Onager Dunecrawlers with the Neutron Lasers, which are the, the big shooty ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then an Imperial Fist a Spearhead. So this is an actual Imperial Fist Spearhead. with It's the Siegebreaker Cohort, which I'll be honest, I know helps Centurions out, but other than that I don't know much more about what it does from the Vigilist Defiant book. It is a strat. Uh, so it- it is a strat that does mortal wounds on sixes with bolters. Oh, when that's you're shooting what vehicles. That's, that's what he's is it on hit for. rolls or wound rolls? I believe it is wound rolls. I might mm. be wrong about that though. That's uh, that's 
pretty solid. Uh, so he's got a captain with a chainsword, a storm bolter, kind of your basic captain, and then a captain in Phobos armor, a model I am um, particularly fond of, um, though it is it is pointed incorrectly. It's actually 121 points, because you have to spend two points for the camo cloak. So hmm. just a heads up there. Uh, but it's a captain in Phobos armor with a mastercrafted instigator bolt carbine, uh, and then he has the Eye of Hypnoth, which is, I believe, a warlord or relic. Warlord trait? I don't know. That's, I don't that's, actually that's know what That's the that relic. The warlord, the warlord trait is target priority. I would, it's, it, people who want to know can look into the Imperia, the Vigilist book. We don't need to yep. detail every warlord trait here. <laughs> uh, and then uh, an apothecary um, to heal up those centurions. And then a large centurion devastator squad uh, with five... Twin heavy bolter centurions, so just a whole bunch of hurricane bolters and heavy bolter shots to put those mortal wounds on vehicles. Like Sean said, three eliminators, um, three units of eliminators, three by three, which I think is probably the best way to run the eliminators. And for those of you who don't know, eliminators are the large Primaris sniper units that come out of the Shadow Sphere box. Uh, I've used them; they are very good. Um, Though, as a single unit of three, because they're only limited to a minimum and maximum unit size of three models, um, I feel like like nine is probably where you want to be with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're good, they're cheap. Uh, and Land Raider Crusader, which is which is really interesting, f- probably for the Centurions. Um, and I think you can also fit the Captain as well with them, if if I remember correctly, because the Land Raider Crusader yes. is 16. Yeah. Uh, and then a... An Astromilitarum Loyal 32 with a Basilisk and a Wyvern. Uh, looks like he does not make it the Emperor's Wrath Artillery. Um, it's not on his list anyways. Yeah, uh, it's and not then that listed it. there, which is kind of odd, but I would assume that's what that is just missing because the, the Basilisk and Wyvern when the, the Wrath is the standard setup. Yeah, and that he has 18 CP, so you know there's no reason not to. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, that's a list. it's a good solid list. Um, I, I'd I'd like to hear how the Centurions did for him. Is it okay? I'm doing the mental math here. Um, I think it's illegal because his camo cloak's mispriced on the yeah yeah the, yeah. That's so it's 121 points for for and he isn't marked as 119 it, points. It it depends on whether his other point values are all correct and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm not, not going to go through and add it all up. <laughs> Yeah, he might. He might have. Some people will put the incorrect points, but then have the nope. correct points on their sheet added up. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not the. I'm not the I mean, police. The ITC battle, police. Um, the... But I do know that the. Finish your thought, Pablo. Oh, I was just gonna say. I was gonna say. I do know that the camo cloaks in the shadow spear box, um, are are kind of feisty because you know when you're pointing out units. Um, some have camel cloaks and some don't, so it gets a little awkward when you're wearing them out. Because in the normal Space Marine Codex, anything that can take a camel cloak is either optional or already priced with it. So it's it's a little weird. I just I also had a similar problem when I was making my uh, Shadow Spear list, and and I kept forgetting to add the camel cloaks in and all that. Mm. So, anyways, yeah, sometimes worse battle Space Marine players just aren't used to. We're used to just optional. Oh yeah, and yeah, also sometimes battle scribe will. Well, you know, there's a ton of different factors in there. Anyways, the point is, it's it, eliminators are good. I, I, it's nice to see Imperial Fist Centurions with the Land Raider Crusader making getting first place at an event. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, in second place, we had Mr. Daniel Hester's um, coming in with a multi-faction Imperium list. Uh, he had a, an Astromel Terran Battalion with a Knight Commander Pask. Three infantry squads, a company commander, a master of ordnance, a wyvern, 
and, oh, and a wyvern. That's it. Uh, and then a supreme command detachment of blood angels with a smash captain, a librarian, and phobos armor. Another model I absolutely love. Uh, and a th- librarian dreadnought. Uh, and then finally a house raven detachment with two armager warglaives and a knight castellan. Uh, in third place we had Seth Oster with um, an orcs list. Uh, and this is I'm just going through the list real quick. He had storm boys in the list with mech guns. Uh, mech guns and these are the smash gun mech guns too. Um, mech guns have kind of since fallen out of favor since the uh, people really found ludas. Um, so it's interesting to see him come back to mech guns in his list. Uh, and then finally, Tony Pierce coming in fourth place with a mixed multi-faction chaos list with uh, Plague Bearers, Pink Horrors, two units of Plague Bearers, one big unit of Pink Horrors, um, two Demon Princes, all the usual Nurgle and Zinch HQ choices, and then one large unit of Blightlord Terminators and two Foul Blight Spawn. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and next up is the Steel City Slaughter. Uh, I want to give TJ Lanigan, this is a 32-person event, ITC format, uh, not the largest event of the weekend for sure, but TJ Lanigan, it was six rounds, and he went 6-0, and and in second place, Evan Lacey went 4-1-1, one, one. Uh, so TJ Lanigan was one and a half wins ahead of everyone um, at an event, which I, I just think is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just like to imagine, in those scenarios, I like to imagine the event going to like nine rounds, and then the person's winning all of them and going like nine and zero, and then the re- everyone else is you know like five and four or whatever. Um, I just see that it's always just kind of <laughs> funny. Know, but anyway, k- kicking <laughs> dogs while they're down, basically. Yeah, or or you know just being clearly being the best at the time at that event. You mean pulling a secretariat? <laughs> exactly. That's, uh, okay, so Mr. T.J. Lanigan came in first place, uh, went undefeated with a Chaos Undivided list. Uh, and this was actually uh, a similar list to the one I just read off. Um, so he has the the Chaos Undivided list with uh, Changecaster, the unit of 30, the unit of 30 Pink Horrors, and two units of 30 Plague Bearers. Uh, Aramon, two Demon Princes of Zinch, a Demon Prince of Nurgle, a large unit of Blight Lord Terminators, and two Foul Blight Spawn. So it's very similar to the uh, Tony Pierce's list at Atomic Empire. Um, mm-hmm. Except that it has an extra Demon Prince in chain instead of, and Aramon, instead of the, um, the Menagerie the, of Nurgle HQ choices. The other list had Aramon as well, but it does switch out oh, the eight. Yeah, it switches out the Nurgle HQ for a Demon Prince. Good. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very good list. Blightlord Terminators, since Don Hoosen broke them at the BAO um, last year, which is coming up on, you know, 10 months ago, uh, Blightlord Terminators are really good. Uh, you know, with the axes and the combi bolters, they have a lot of Daka. They're tough to kill. And then, of course, Demon Princes Inch and Smite Spam um, backed behind plague bears is never a bad choice so this is a really good list if you were look if you were looking to play chaos or if you're wondering what the best chaos list is right now i would probably argue that some version of this list uh with smite spam demon princes tough bodies like plague bears or, or i guess infantry bombs uh and one tough unit like these blight lord terminators is probably a pretty common list that you'll see uh so mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, second place, Evan Lacey, also running a Chaos Multifaction list. Uh, he was running two Poxbringers, a unit of Nurglings, and two 
units of 30 plague bearers and a Nurgle detachment battalion, uh, and then two demon princes of Nurgle, and two Hellforged Leviathan dreadnoughts and three plague bearer scrawlers in a Death Guard spearhead detachment. Uh, so th- this is a this is a very the Hellforged Leviathan dreadnoughts are something that the Don Houston's been running. I, I don't know if he's running. He's running the Derradeos actually, so they're different. Uh, but all of yeah. those Forgeal Dreadnoughts, with with especially the Chaos ones, with all of their different shootings that you can add to your army, they're actually becoming more in vogue uh, now. And I'm not surprised to see Hellforge Leviathan Dreadnoughts with Butcher Cannon arrays. Um, it, it's it's interesting. So so uh, basically, the point of this list is you you kind of have your normal. Plague Bearers, Hiding Band with the characters and all that. And then you have a large fire base in the three Plague Burst Crawlers and the Hellforge Leviathan Dreadnoughts. Um, and the Hellforge Leviathan Dreadnoughts, and I think the Derradeos, they're all actually surprisingly tough to kill, and they, they put out a lot of shots. Um, so don't be surprised to see more of this list, not not just Chaos Space Marines, but also Space Marines. Uh, and don't be, see, don't be surprised to see more Forge World Dreadnoughts um, making the rounds, especially at the BAO, where I think they're probably going to do really well. Uh, and then a an Eldar Corsairs list coming in third place. Uh, Sean, I'm going to let you read off this list because it's a very interesting list. It's actually very simple. It just looks complicated. Uh, there are three detachments. It is completely irrelevant what type of detachments they are, although they are battalions because they all give zero CP. Uh, thank you, Corsair Rules, because not having HQs is fantastic. Um, it has 14 identical squads, every one of which contains five Corsair guys, uh, with four shard carbines, that's the three-shot poison weapon, and one blaster, uh, plus their mandatory pistols, which are actually surprisingly good, um... And then the, each of those 14 squads ra- rides in an identical Venom, which is a Splinter Cannon and the Splinter Rifle. Um, so great. It's it's not exactly unique. Um, it does exactly one thing. But if you can't deal with that thing, then yeah, it's kind of scary. Now, d- does he still get... He doesn't get access to stratagems either, right? So he has the core rulebook stratagems and nothing else. Uh, Four core rulebook stratagems, as they have added prepared positions (laughs) and three CP. Exactly three CP. Uh, It's um, yeah, corsairs are not great. Yeah, well, he went four and two with them, so I'm I'm gonna give credit where credits due. I mean it. (laughs) It controls the board really well, and it does have a lot of shooting. It just doesn't have anything else. And if he runs into one triple knight list, it's over, right? That's that's how I imagine it. I guess he's got kind the blasters, of, so he might get lucky. Yeah, he's got a he's got fourteen blasters. Uh, that's something, and he also has twenty eight units. Uh, that's a lot of stuff to chew through. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. We got a uh, Ryan Christensen came now. running up the top four uh, with a Tau list. He had uh, Spearhead with uh, Commander in an Enforcer battle suit and Commander Longstrike, three Hammerheads with Ion Cannons and a Skyray gunship, uh, and then an Outrider detachment with a bunch of Piranhas, uh, Cold Star Battle Commander, and a Tau Sept Battalion with two Cadre Fireblades, two Breacher Teams, a Strike Team, and a bunch of Farsight Marksmen and two Devilfish. 
That was actually Saucy. Say Sarah. that again. It was Saucy at the last. Oh, Italian, so, Saucy, Saucy, Saucy and a, Sorry, I saw Tau Empire Sept, not Tau Sept. Saucia Sept. Um, but that's it. It's an interesting Tau list. Uh, piranhas. Sean, are hammerheads with long strike? Are those good? Are those potentially something that people will see more of? You're starting to see them come back a bit as knights have declined in popularity a little. Um, they do hit very, very hard, and they are extremely accurate, but they're pretty vulnerable to a Castellan. Um, you know, a Castellan will ace one or two of them pretty much every turn. Um, hmm. But getting to shoot a ballistic skill two up for Tau is really big. Uh, and then finally, the last tournament, the Alberta Classic. Uh, Darren Jacques came in first place with a mixed Tyranid list. Uh, he had a Malanthrope and a Neurothrope and an HQ detachment, three units of three large units of Termagants and three units of four Zoanthropes, um, which is interesting. Uh, Jackal Alphys and a Magus in a in a mixed Genesir Cult detachment, so no Cult. Uh, with two units of acolyte hybrids and some brood brothers, a killer morph, and then two larger unit or two units of six Atlan jackals with demolition charges and shotguns, and then a supreme command astromilitarium detachment with three tank commanders, two have the punisher gatling cannon, and one has a battle cannon. So this is mm-hmm. this is a really interesting list. So this this is the guy who got first place. He went six and zero. Oh. Um, uh, to start breaking this list down, he basically took the some of the best units in each of the codex and and then just that's what he did so he had the the screening with the termagants the malanthrope to give them the minus one to hit and then the neurothropes and the the zoanthropes for smiting um, which is a pretty good little smite battery uh and the, then the the zoanthropes also have a stratagem much like the doom scythe one we talked about earlier where they can, uh, if you have three units of them near each other, they can shoot out a giant explosion of 3v3 mortal wounds. Um, and yeah, the units of four or more do extra damage on smite, so they can also be very powerful in that respect. Uh, <clears throat> and then the three tank commanders, which are, as we mentioned earlier, in vogue, uh, they're really good. This is a this is a good list. This is something that you see, um, you can't, you know, there's no real head scratchers other than I guess the choice of the lists, because um, so you don't really see a lot of mixed tiering lists that go this route. Um, but it's just a solid list. It is interesting that he took so few acolytes. Usually, they are featured very prominently in Gene Stewart cult lists, as they are very efficient. Uh, but he is only running two units of five of them, which is quite small. Yeah, and it, 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 it's funny because if you were to expand any of these detachments. Um, into what their full codex provides because each of these detachments or each of these codexes actually are perfectly viable and competitive as standalone you know factions with tyranids genes their cult and astro militarum and he, he basically took elements from all of them um, and from all those pure lists and just threw them all together mm-hmm. all right and then in second place we had adam green with astro militarum uh coming in as uh, Astro Militarum and a Knight Crusader. Uh, so he had <clears throat> a Cadian Brigade, or a Cadian Battalion, sorry, with a Company Commander and a Tank Commander with a Battle Cannon, uh, three units of Infantry, one unit of nine Bulgren, three by three Heavy Weapon Mortar Teams, a second Cadian Battalion with Knight Commander Pask and two more Tank Commanders, so it's a total of four Tank Commanders, um, 
Pask has a Punisher, and then the tank commanders are split one Battle Cannon and one Punisher. Three more units of infantry, and then a House, Crass, Knight, Crusader. Uh, so basically, a lot of bodies and four tank commanders and Bulgren. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a that's a pretty solid list there. Uh, and then third place, Gordon Sundin had an Eldar, mixed Eldar list. Actually, I think it's pure Eldar list. A pure Craft World Eldar list with uh, Farseer Skyrunner, Warlock Skyrunner, three Rangers, a small unit of Wind Riders, three Night Spinners, another Autark Skyrunner in a, in a Lytok detachment with three units of five Shining Spears, and then three Hemlock Wraith Fighters to round nope. it all out. Nope, nope. One unit of no. Shining Spears and two units of Wind Riders. Oh, uh, yeah. The One Wind Riders are, are just very basic... Uh, uh, shuriken cannons on them. The Shining Spears is only five man, which is kind of odd. I'm not entirely sure what he was doing there. But then, yeah, as you say, he rounds it out with the three Hemlock Wraith Fighters. Yep. Uh, and then finally, Adam Thompson rounding out the top four with a Death Watch list. Um, <clears throat> he had your Watch Captain and Watchmaster in a Death Watch Battalion with the usual three large units of veterans. Um, I... Let me just go through these to make sure I don't miss anything. It's just all veterans with storm bolters and storm shields, and then a terminator in it's, each of them, and a black shield as well. It looks like seven and a vanguard veter- veteran. Seven veterans, a terminator, a black shield, and a vanguard guy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's so it's a total of eight storm bolter shots. Uh, well, eight infantry store eight power armor storm bolter shots, a terminator, and then the vanguard veteran to give them the jump pack ability. Um, which, which is pretty good. It's something that if you're bringing Death Watch, it's a good solid uh, core to bring or, and build around. Uh, and then he had a loyal 32 with, instead of two company commanders, the two tank commanders. Um, this is the mechanized 32. With <laughs> the little, anyways, it's two tank commanders and 30 um, guardsmen, but his infantry squads also had sniper rifles, um, which I think are kind of cool little tech. They're for two points. You get a sniper rifle on an infantry squad guy. It replaces a guy. It's pretty good. Uh, and then finally, a House Crest Knight Crusader in a super heavy auxiliary detachment, and I imagine probably yep, eighty-five points for an assassin of his choice. Mm-hmm. And that is it. Yeah. All right. Thank you for sticking through all that tournament. There were a lot of tournaments. Um, next week we will cover the Bay Area Open, uh, and we'll probably stick to just tournament coverage next week. Um, if there's a, depending on how many events there are around the Bay Area Open, uh, but mostly we're going to talk about the Bay Area Open and all that good stuff. So look forward to that. All right, so let's talk tactics for everyone at all levels of the game. Um, so I I talked about uh, kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier in the episode, uh, and where this topic kind of came from was I've been kind of getting into chess a lot more lately. Um, and, and I'm not a particularly great player. Uh, I'm, my rating isn't astounding or anything, although I do know enough about chess to, to be able to talk about it comfortably. And like, I know openings and strategies and all that. Um, and I listen to GMs regularly. Uh, but there was something that can't happen to me in a, in a game. Um, when I just got off like, like a lot of hours of playing chess and I played a game afterwards and I noticed the mistakes I was making in the game could have been rectified with using a little bit of chess philosophy. And so I, I've been thinking about that lately, and I played a couple more 40k games since then to kind of, you know, test my theories and figure out if, if you know, there was there was actually a similarity there, and it turns out there kind of was. 
Um, so uh, today we're going to be talking about um, positioning efficiently um, on the tabletop and uh, using kind of just uh, efficient positioning to control the board and get the most out of your units. Uh, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more. Uh, so, so it sounds like you're using positioning to gain yourself uh, board control. Kind of. So, so let me let me help you guys with an analogy to kind of get the ball rolling here. So, uh, in this first game I played, uh, there was a captain on a bike, uh, and this captain on the bike was mispositioned pretty terribly. Uh, so I was playing against Chaos, and he had a Chaos Lord on a jump pack that was going to get warp timed, uh, max distance, and needed to take out my assassin because he had the ability to put 20 mortal wounds under my knight, which he did do. Um, as you find out, that assassin did die. Uh, so I realized that where my captain was, he was only able to draw a beat on plague bearers, and he wasn't able to do much else. However, if I had put him on the Calexus assassin, so if I'd put him basically right next to the assassin, and I knew he was going to warp time and jump onto the assassin. He'd, he'd been dropping hints about that turn one, complaining about how good the assassin was. So if I'd put the assassin on, or if I'd put the chapter or the captain on the bike next to the assassin, I could have heroically intervened into the warlord with the jump pack uh, and stopped it from fighting again, potentially. Um, I could have also just deterred him because he, he might think that, yeah, if I can take it out on his turn, that captain will then be able to slingshot and to do something else. So it would have just been better to put it there. I also would have had a better angle on the unit of Plague Bears that I was shooting at. And it turns out that I needed those shots because of messed up target priority. I didn't shoot the captain first, and so two models were left in the Plague Bear unit. And so if I'd put the captain there, I would have definitely killed more Plague Bear models. And then also... If I had put my captain there, I would have been closer to an objective more towards the center of the board. And I could have actually potentially consolidated and then moved to get onto that objective to at least contest it. Because um, I had the bottom of the turn. So there were multiple factors that um, could have been put in place if I had just put the captain and positioned him to a specific spot. And where this relates to chess is, is in chess, when you're looking at the value of pieces and you're looking at what they can do for you on the board, pieces that attack and defend multiple squares from their position are more valuable than pieces that don't. Right. So, for example, the queen, so if you're familiar with chess, the queen can move in any direction diagonally horizontally, which means the queen can potentially attack and and uh, kill any piece in her wide range of threats, right? So she can uh, cover board or cover spaces that your opponent will attack and do, and and take the pieces in turn that attack those spaces, and can also simultaneously attack multiple spots. So that that's kind of the thought process there was that a unit is more efficient if it's doing more things for you in its position, right? So another example would be a unit that is simultaneously holding you an objective and able to shoot your opponent's units, as opposed to the same unit not being able to shoot your opponent's units, but also standing on objective, or vice versa, not standing on an objective and shooting an, opponent, an opponent's unit. So so that's kind of the theory behind there. Um, so so that's that's basically mm -hmm. where I was going with all that. Uh, another another uh, point of efficiency that you could probably do a little more of than I know I could do better out is an idea of the knight on the fly is die. And so in chess terms, that means that a knight on the edge of the board has a limited range of mobility because you're effectively cutting its movement in half. It, there's a whole, it can't move off the board. So there's a whole half of its range of movement that just simply can't work. And the same thing would be applied to a unit of like bolter marines, for example. So a unit of bolter marines in the absolute farthest corner of the board 
simply just can't shoot anything because it, it can't open its full range of shots. Whereas if you put it in the middle of the board, it would have more abilities to shoot things. And obviously, Bolt and Marines might not be the best example, but you get the idea. Uh, units on the edge of the board are automatically hindered in their movement and their ability to affect the board because half of their movement or half of their range is cut off. So, uh, I was going to point out the huge thing about that, though, is they only can be attacked from certain angles. So and and that is true. And so that's that's the flip side there, right? If you um, if you castle in a corner, for example, you don't have to worry about your opponent deep striking behind you or on your flanks because they can't. Right, and so that would be the idea of limiting your um, your efficiency, your units' efficiency to survive. Um, but if you, depending on where you castle, that can be good and bad, right? So a, a lot of the things we talk about um, on this podcast, or it's one of the main things we talk about on this podcast, are why castling isn't always the best choice, or why it's perceived to be bad, because. If a lot of times when people castle, they'll castle either on one objective or they'll put themselves in position to not win the game later. So they'll successfully defend themselves, but then when it comes to turn five and turn six, uh, they don't have the mobility or the ability to get out and affect the board, and so they lose, right? So they might have survived and shot a lot of your opponent's pieces off the board, but at the same time, because they were so immobile, they couldn't win the game for you, which is something that does happen. Uh, so if you're, so I think if you were going to apply this um, theory to castling, make sure that when you're castling, your units are uh, doing multiple things for you. So if you can, castling on the middle of the board, in the middle of the board, would be awesome, right? That'd be ideal because you can score recon, you can ideally hit multiple objectives, you have your full range of shooting, so you can shoot 360 degrees, uh, and you're you're able to move anywhere on the board when you need to. Um, because every point on the board is is closer to you on the as you're in the little board versus if you were on the opposite side of that point. So you can castle castle the little board, but understand that that's why we have deployment zones. Uh, but just to give you like a a quick example. Um, so uh, another thing that uh, I was thinking of, and th this is very important for for looking at your opponent's units as well, is um, Target priority for your opponent's units is important when you want to look at what your opponent's units can do. Uh, so, for example, you a, a Knight Castellan might be more dangerous um, because it can kill a bunch of different things, but it might not be the most valuable unit to kill on the board. If your opponent has a Lehman Rust Tank Commander that's shooting you, so it's, it's killing things as well, but it's also an HQ choice, so it might be like a Headhunter choice or a Kingslayer point, and it might also be uh, holding an objective or on an objective, or or uh, preventing you from scoring an objective in one way or another. So that, that Lehman Rust, though it might not kill as much as a Nykastellan, might be worth more points to you in the long run. Uh, and so applying this theory to... Sort of. I'm, I'm going to put a point out here. The Castellan has really hard-hitting firepower, and it just tears things up successfully every turn. Absolutely, that in and of itself and... is a problem. Um. So, so I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I don't think your example is necessarily great because it's like the Castellan you have to deal with on some level, or it will. Yeah, just and and, that, and that's the other thing too, right? Is yeah, it, yeah. Unless it, all of this is situational. Um, but... Anyways, you should never take anything uh, any of us say at face value. Um, especially when it comes to tactics, because, you know, usually 
usually there's an exception to everything, right? There, there's very true rules that are 100% true all of the time, uh, especially when it comes to these kind of tactics. Yeah. Um, I, I think a better comparison would be something like he's got he's got an Earthshaker that's holding an objective and blasting you, and then he's got a unit of Ogren over here that are also problematic for different reasons, but they're not anywhere yeah. that's per- presently relevant. Yeah. And that would and, be a and that's, that's the thing too, is is you're right about the Castellan, but if you wanted to limit the Castellan's efficiency, um the Castellan does have one big problem that it's one big unit and it's affecting or one big unit of points and it's affecting specific parts of the board. Um and it's not two Castellans, it's basically my point. So if you were to split the Castellan up into two separate units, um where they could you know, hold multiple objectives or have different firing lanes, they would be more efficient, right? So if you know that the Castellan can't see into buildings, for example, into magic boxes, or if you know that the Castellan is on one corner of the board um, and there's another side of the board that you want, putting your units, that especially units that the Castellan wants to kill, on the opposite side of it while also holding objectives both lowers the Castellan's efficiency and increases your efficiency. So those are the kind of vectors you want to look at when you're when you're uh, deploying and when you're moving your units. So if you were in that situation where you wanted to not shoot the Castellan, maybe because, you know, for whatever reason, maybe shooting the Castellan wouldn't be worth it as a three up invuln save you're playing before the FAQ, it doesn't matter. Um, you would want to limit the Castellan's ability to shoot things and also, you know, uh, maximize your unit's ability to kill the commander that you want to kill, right? So that that's kind of the whole, the whole positioning efficiency. Anyways, uh, do you guys have anything more to add to that specific thing before I move on? I'm here. What happened? You guys have just been talking. He's he's um he's uh getting a little bored. I understand. It's a chess lecture. Most boring things you can possibly. (laughs) It's it's applicable to 40k. Uh, I I think your your point is good that you you can't have a unit that does just one thing. Yes. Um, you, you'll you see this a lot with many tournament armies. Um, I play Tau. Tau really have a lot of small units that they can use in various ways to control the board. Uh, the Firesight Marksman, the little like individual guy with a marker light. Uh, yeah, 25 points where a guy with a marker light is great. But the other thing that taking three of them does is it keeps the enemy completely out of your backfield with deep strikes. Mm-hmm. Um, three guys with nine-inch bubbles around them will basically cover an entire deployment zone. So you're you're paying 25 points not just for a marker light, but also for board control and objective holding. And that is true in almost all cases, that if a unit is only doing one thing, it's not you're not really getting your full value out of it. Right. And and so and I agree with you hundred percent, Sean. So um if you were if you were maybe worried about um not using your Farsight Moxins or your company commanders or whatever little, you know, single HQ units efficiently. Um, you know, you might want to look at where you're positioning them. Are they are they just, you know, castling up with the rest of your army? Are they moving up with your army? I do see a lot of people, um, they don't necessarily know where to put their HQ choices or put their, their little chaff units that, that are support units, but not quite. Um, so, you know, look at things that they can do for you. Like Sean said, they can block an entire deployment zone if you need them to. Uh, they can also, three of them can also sit on an objective and you know, redundancy hold that objective, uh, provided that there's mm-hmm. no your opponent can't charge them and kill all three of them. Um, 
And then you can also position them in a way so that they're they're not overlapping with each other. So even if your opponent does charge into them, he might not be able to kill all three of them. Um, you know, which which he'll probably still hold that objective anyways. But the point is, is that um, you should look at using them in different ways to do things for you other than what their basic function is. Yeah, because like there are a lot of different roles that a unit can fulfill on the battlefield. Some of them are generic to any unit. You know, cover space on the board hold an objective, block for a character. Anything can do that. But there's also rules that are specific to individual units, and combining both of those is where you're going to get mileage out of your army. Uh, and it's why guys like Nick Navadi and Brandon Grant, who can do multiple things with each unit in their army in a turn, seem like they're playing so far ahead of everyone else because, you know, functionally they're playing with, you know, two or three or five or ten extra units in their army and that's mm -hmm. obviously pretty big yep <clears throat> uh do you guys have anything to add on to that or do you, do you mind if i jump on to the second thing uh, i think head on out to our, our other... i have no idea what shanta said because i didn't hear anything but okay no um so I the just... second thing i wanted to talk about and shaylin are you are you still with us okay can you hear sean i can hear you I just can't hear Sean. There's the difference. I <laughs> Sean did say something, something interesting. interesting. While well, he's uh, taking care of that and fixing it. Um, so the second thing I wanted to move to was more of an idea of board control. Um, and that's attacking parts of the board. Right? So in chess and in, even in 40k, there's a lot of famous games where people have played from behind. But they've still won anyways and that's because they used their resources uh, more efficiently to attack specific parts of the board, right? So in chess, uh, there's one really famous game, I can't remember about the Grandmasters, where basically uh, the Grandmasters Queen sacrificed, uh, which is the most powerful piece, um, to disposition his opponent's knight, or move his opponent's knight out of position, and then with three or four developed pieces, which means the pieces were actually in play to do things, and they weren't just sitting in his deployment zone, quote-unquote, um, won the game by attacking the, the king's knight side, or the black piece's knight side, right? And so what that means is, is the even though the opponent, the white, or even though the black opponent had more pieces on the board physically they were all either being useless in the in the opponent's deployment zone or off doing nowhere in la la land uh, and all of white's remaining forces were targeting this one specific area right and so the way this applies to 40k is if you if you know that uh you're behind or if you know that um that yeah, you need one specific area. Maybe you need to. Maybe there's a cluster of your opponent's HQ choices, and so that's like four headhunter points plus definitely like kill and kill more through like several turns, right? So you're just gonna massacre all those poor little HQ choices or or whatever. There's a specific part of the board that you should definitely attack because that's where all the points are on the board, right? So you should establish those points on the board and then attack them mm -hmm. with everything you have. Right, and so uh, try not to spread out your forces. Try not to uh, try to keep everything in the same firing lane. Uh, and this is kind of, this is kind of. Uh, this exactly. is literally what the deep strike tactic is. Is yeah. it's what I would call a precision spearhead. You are making you're you're making a huge tempo play where you're concentrating all your force in one little spot. Yeah. and you're and, just and this, going into the side of something. This is also Hopefully a little counterintuitive to our first time. point, right? Because you know, um, you're even if your unit is doing one thing, like uh, for example, targeting this one 
a specific part of the board or attacking this one specific part of the board. It could be more efficient maybe holding objective and attacking another part of the board. However, that's not the point of this specific tactic. The specific tactic is to overload one part of the board. Um, and another thing that I, I know I personally need to work on is the ability to keep all my units together um, when I need to do this strategy. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll focus on the other thing. I'll focus on uh, getting the most out of my units. So I'll put like a scout squad in a corner holding an objective and I'll, I'll put like my assassin in another corner when in reality what I should have done is I should have even put the scout squad, the assassin, everything possible this one spot and even though they might necessarily not do a whole lot because they're such weak units uh, they can still tie up a unit um, they can eat overwatch they can hold an objective while the rest of the bulk of my army does this thing that I need it to do right and so a lot of the times if you keep your army really close together and and keep it all attacking the same area you'll get more efficiency out of it than spreading it all out so that's that's not always the case that is not always true um, but in certain games that sometimes that's what you need to do uh, and in particular if you're playing from behind sometimes it's best to just bring everything together and focus on one thing uh, and let your opponent hopefully make mistakes uh, and spread themselves out too thin. Yep. As I said, it's a tempo play because what you're basically doing is you're you're deciding that you're having this battle in a specific spot, which is going to make your opponent, if their army spread out, have to spend time to come to you and you've wiped out everything in the area. So you can just kind of time in and take the army in yeah, chunks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it, like I said before, it does depend on, on your opponent, um, but that would be, that tempo play would be the best choice um, if you were playing from behind and you needed to just focus on one specific part to win. But yeah, um, can you think of any games where maybe this could have been applied in your case, Shaylin, any of your games or anything like that? That is the no, yeah, absolutely. Like, if you've got putting, if you've got putting strike squads in the corners, <laughs> um, um, you're probably in a rough spot. And actually, the grant. No, actually, that's what I used the scout squads yeah, for and... back when I had my mixed detachment thing. Um, the scout squads would go hold objectives. Yeah, and, and, and there the was strikes would spear there was um, uh, the Granite player I played at the Battle for LA. I feel like if he had put. Because he only he he threw one dread knight at me, but then kept Drago and his and everything else except his land raider crusader, kind of like like pushed back and hiding. But I feel like if he had put the land raider crusader in my face, the dread knight, both dread knights, all the strike squads, and and basically left nothing, forced me to deal with his entire army. He probably could have won that game because I reserved like a good portion of my units and I'd spread myself out really thin to try and get as many vectors on, on his Grey Knights as possible because I wanted the board wipe him off from the board as quickly as possible. Um, so if he had just shoved everything at my Castellan, he eventually would have killed it, and I probably would have lied. I don't want to say guaranteed to lose the game, but... I'm going to be kind to you, Pablo. He probably uh, doesn't you, kill you, you, That Dread Knight took a lot of shots. <laughs> I was sweating a little bit. I was like... <laughs> they do, but I'm I'm just gonna comment that if the Dreadnought doesn't get into the Castell and the Castell you know, lives, it was, and, and the I also went die. first. That is literally which, what which happens is, there. You know, was not not very easy to deal with because turn one I blew up the Land Raider and all the Paladins inside of it. It was pretty bad. The point is, is that um, I not only in that scenario, but um, I distinctly remember games that I played where my opponent literally told me like, if you had put everything on the board turn one and rushed me, I would have lost. Um, and I was like, oh, well, I should have done that then. Anyways. 
Uh, so, uh, moving on. Uh, Sean, are you with yeah. us? Yeah. Shaylin, can you hear him? Okay, great. Everything is fixed. The yes. warp has been uh, pushed aside, cast away, run out. All right. Let's not look into that <laughs> uh, too quick. So finally, Mostly the the third kind of point I wanted to make, uh, and this is one that, that has less to do with chess, but came from me playing chess, uh, and that's looking ahead turns in advance. Right, so one time I, 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 you know, I was watching this video, mm-hmm. uh, and there was the youngest grandmaster ever, and he was playing an older grandmaster, about a guy in his mid forties, both amazing, phenomenal chess players, uh, and they were playing a game of blitz chess, uh, which means each side only had five minutes to play their whole game, uh, and the kid spent about two minutes thinking of one move after they'd done all their initial positioning, and everyone was wondering what is this little kid doing? He's spending two minutes just thinking. Uh, and then proceeded to just absolutely stomp the older Grandmaster into the ground because he thought so far ahead in the game that he knew exactly what was going to happen. So he spent those two minutes to just think ahead of the game. And that's something that, that I feel like I should do more when I'm playing 40k. It's actually pretty easy to apply to 40k. Um, it, you know, Obviously, there's still dice involved, so you can't accurately predict everything. Um, however, a, a unit moving six inches and even advancing um, means that you can kind of figure out that unit's path, right? And so if, for example, uh, you see a chapter master or a captain that you want to avoid uh, and it moves 12 inches, um, you want to keep everything roughly like like 40 inches away from it. it it'll, hits, it'll hit something 40 inches away from it in two turns, right? Because it'll move 12 plus advance, move 12 plus advance, and then on the third turn, we'll be able to charge the thing that you were charging, right? And so it, it's little things like that, planning ahead your turns, um, that I think I should do more of, and I suspect that people can probably do more of um, in the game, right? And so it, it's important to think about where your units are going to be turn three, um, what your opponent is probably going to target turn one and turn two, uh, and then go from there. And, um, and so that's just something, it, it's not something I, I need to elaborate too much on, although I'm sure you both can elaborate a little bit more on it, but it, it's just something that I, I think that people should probably try doing a little bit more. Yeah, there's a lot of value to, like in your Blitz Chess example, just taking a minute at the beginning of your turn and thinking, what do I need to do this turn and how am I going to do it? Uh, we've talked about it on In the Finest Hour. I think we've even talked about it here on Chapter Tactics a number of times. But just spending that minute or two planning is really valuable to your turn because it means you're pursuing a goal that you know rather than sort of chasing a very nebulous kind of like, I don't know, I think I want to destroy some units or something. Uh Well, the other thing is is when I'm doing that, because I do do that, is I think, where do I need to be next turn? Because my opponent's probably going to be here, here, and here. Yes. Where do I need to be if I need to counterplay that? Because sometimes you need to be moving units two yeah, turns ago. I, I actually like to think of it as problem. kind of a, an ever-shrinking bubble of potential. But you know how long the game is going to be, especially in ITC. It's got a fixed length. And you know how far your units can move each turn. They've got a fixed movement value. Um... That means that at the start of the game, you have, for, say, a 6-inch move unit, you have a 36-inch range bubble around yourself where you can be at the end of the game. But that bubble shrinks every turn. 
and it gets more and more yep. confined to particular places on the board. Yeah. So you need to be looking at where can I go, where do I need to go, and also considering what happens if this one unit is destroyed, can another unit still make it to where I need to be? Because it's not just any single unit, it's all the different units you have. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is why usually it's better to remove to move things in blocks. Not necessarily complete castle moving, but at least in blocks, because having a little redundancy with you... Yeah, as Pablo mentioned yeah. earlier, a single unit of objective gets shot or charged off. A couple of units may actually be able to survive it. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's kind of similar um, that I see a lot of players do, even subconsciously is to start sectionalizing the or sectioning off the board right and so the the funny way i do is i like i like um um looking at really high level 40k games and looking at where the dice piles are <laughs> so wherever the dice are piled in and where all the tape measures and rule books are that's exactly where you don't want to look at the board because both players are psychologically telling you that they don't care about that spot of the board because it's irrelevant to where the game is, right? And where the players are measuring, looking, um, kind of rolling their dice near, that's where all the action is on the game. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can do that ahead of time, like uh, I, I like to find a specific spot where I know no one's going to be and then just lay all my dice out in that spot. Um, also, psychologically, it can sometimes affect your opponent. Right, like mm -hmm. I've done it, and then found my opponent not deep striking in that area, and then I'll slowly move units over to that area, and then be like, "Haha!" Because my dice were here, you didn't want to psychologically play here. And this is a little thing. This is a very fringe little, you know, above the table tactic that doesn't always work. It almost never works. But the point is, is that psychologically, I feel like players do tend to gravitate towards the areas of the board that matter. Uh, and then start to treat the areas of the board that don't matter um, with, you well, know... their storage space. I don't want to say no respect, yeah. but their storage space and, <laughs> start to see the sports space. And that's space. natural. It's it's sometimes not even an intentional thing where, like, oh, I'm going to put this here because I'm not going to use this. But dice and tape measure and stuff get just laid down all over the place. But when they're in the way, we move them. So they get moved yep. when they're in the way, but they don't get moved when they aren't. So stuff kind of accumulates there. Um, but yeah, and so if, if you're not moving them out, of the yeah, way. that said, I think Pablo actually makes a really good point there about your opponent kind of subconsciously ignoring that space sometime. Um, it may not be worth it to try and get them to do that, but make sure you're not doing that. Don't, don't ignore oh, oh, a section yeah. of the board just because your opponent put their army list there. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's a real easy trap to fall into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I, I I need to. There, there's a dumb story about me um, wanting to deep strike over there, so I told oh. my opponent one deep strike over there. He says, "Well, I don't want to move my dice." <laughs> that's, I said, "Well, I'm putting my units there, so your dice are getting moved." Thing to be like, I'm gonna deep strike yeah, this unit wanna... here. He's like, "No, that's where my dice go." It's like, uh, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> you should you should do the same thing both your hand. Yeah. Just be like oh. when he's about to move his unit onto an objective, just put your hand casually over that. And be like, no, I don't want to. Right. Move my well, hand. just put your I'm put your hand. Yeah. Just no, you don't get to move there. <laughs> Um, so, so... Oh my gosh. How that got resolved no is a judge got involved, and he had to move his dice. To move yeah. His dice. <laughs> yeah. Aww. Uh, this is one of the Rough jerk the faces time. from LDO. Anyways, <laughs> so, so, um, uh, it, it's also important to note that, um, when you're creating dead piles, which, which happens all the mm -hmm. time, 
and you know, don't worry. Um, don't you want to make sure that your living models are also not <laughs> in those dead piles or not near the dead piles? Because I've I've on more than one occasion scooped up an extra scout or two into my dead pile, uh, and then when I went to go take wounds on that unit, they've died because I thought there were more models in there than there actually were. <laughs> um, so that that has happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of the big I, benefits of having an actual like tray you can keep no convenient. Is it's much easier to just place models straight into it. Yeah. Also, to tip um, for the episode, make sure if you do make sure to have make sure your um, players have space to put their models in and stuff. Yeah. That's a huge boon for your tournament. Whether it's chairs to That's... place trays on, or space underneath the table, or what have you, having some place to put your armies because everyone has to put their army somewhere that makes a tournament so much easier. Yeah, yeah, they're. It's not yeah, ideal. They're, they're, they're there are literal the thousands of dollars that have been lost um, in multiple games, not just forty k, uh, because of you know to is not taking into account space and the space that players need. Yeah, so. Anyways. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, so is there anything else you guys kind of want, want to add to this? Um, those are the three main points um, I wanted to kind of bring up. Uh, sure. So I, I actually have a side point on this. Um, you mentioned, like, you want to have your units being as efficient as possible. If you are in, faced with an option where your units can't be as efficient as possible, make them as efficiently costed in that position as possible. So, for example, when I was mentioning the servitors that only cost 20 points to hold the backfield, they only need to spend 20 points yeah, to do it, that. It, you don't feel it bad is okay to have house. cheap units that only do one really minor thing, but they have to be really cheap. Um, and I would say holding an objective is a relatively unmanageable yeah, thing, all things considered. I, I think it depends on um, how often you can hold an objective. Because if I could spend 500 points to guarantee an objective for the whole game, oh, like yeah. that—that's my objective. I would I would spend those 500 well, points. Maybe not. Oh, 500. No, I would. Uh, if I could spend 500 points to guarantee I hold an objective, I would spend that four times, and I would win every game. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what night players do. Kind of, yeah. Uh, except for the winning every game part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the, the theory behind... But that is the theory behind uh, those big models, right? So, yeah, no. Um, but I, I, I will throw, like, I had a 45-point sisters unit I put zero upgrades on because their job yeah, was and, to and sit And they can occasionally move block or uh, deep strike block when they need to in a pinch. Yeah, but... Yeah. But and I think Shaywin's point there Mostly was block, uh, yeah. that the upgrades would not have helped them any in any of those roles. No, even just one more Absolutely. point is completely wasted on them. Yeah, there, there was one person on YouTube um, along yeah. like maybe oh, like six years ago when I first started getting into 40k, um, who who unfortunately led me to believe that putting a combi grav and a plasma gun in each of your backfield tactical squads mm. was the right way to go. Yeah. So I modeled every single... I, I ran like th like uh, six tactical marine squads back in the day, and I modeled all of the sergeants with combi grabs and all of the plasma guns with grabs, because his philosophy was that anything deep striking in your backfield would all of a sudden randomly start getting grab shots in its face, and that's bad. And I was like, oh, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> 
Well, Pablo, <laughs> in practice, that's you, you are correct in uh, assessing that is a significant problem at this point. Although I would go a step further and say that your real problem was that you were running tactical marines. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. yes, that's that's something he failed to mention <laughs> yes. uh, in the in the video. You know, if if <laughs> you if you put Commigrav on all your tactical marines, they're a lot better. It's like oh, better than what? Ooh. <laughs> Regular oh, tactical. Then yeah, he's correct. Insane. Wait, was this fifth edition? That's class. not true with that then. <laughs> this was this was sixth edition. Or, yeah, um, no, yeah, sixth edition. Okay. It, the, the, the point yeah. is, is that it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> the point is, is that uh, you're absolutely right. The points you spend on a unit should be should accurately reflect what the role that you're trying to give it on the battlefield is. Mm-hmm. So Gilliman is not a you know, a, not a deep strike, so, you know, no. blocker. He is a he is a board control mo- and force multiplying machine. Anyways, and, well, and, <laughs> yes, and, and that's yeah. also what makes units efficient. Yeah, is yeah. and if Gilliman is simultaneously as well as guns um, and everything, move else. blocking, holding an objective, deep strike blocking, covering a unit, and buffing your army, which is which is a problem because he he commonly does all three of all of those things, which is why he's so good. Then Gilman is doing work for you. Yes. Right. Uh, but you have to put him in those positions. Right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. and you know, kind of falling on that, it's important to know what roles you're expecting units to do and make them good at those roles, but not spend points on other things. This is where sort of like the power fist fallacy comes in, uh, because it's like, well, if I put a power fist on my tactical squad, then they can threaten tanks. Yeah. And the reality is, they, I mean, a, they really can't, and b, how often do you charge your your tactical squads into a tank? Um, that, that you're not yeah, it, you're not gaining anything there. Whereas if you put say a yeah. missile launcher on them, that may be worthwhile because they're just going to be sitting in your backfield holding an objective anyways. Why not have them provide a little bit of fire support? Yeah, it's like putting a mortar on an infantry squad. It means like yeah. while yeah. they're hiding out it, of line it, of sight, this actually highlights a pitfall that a lot of objective. I see a lot of players fall into, and that's that. Each unit you put in your army has to be identical, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, each like units, right? So all your tactical marines have plasma guns. All your what? When in reality, um, you might want to put like power fists on the sergeants on your infantry squads, the ones that you want to move up. So if you have like six infantry squads and you plan on moving four of them up because four of them benefit from commanders, uh, but and you don't need six to move up, so you might give two of the infantry squads mortars and then the four that you plan on moving up the board power fists. Then you kind of you've kind of you know given each unit their roles, yeah, yeah. Um, which may Optimized in itself might not it always be the plan. best choice, um, but that's if you are if you do have units that you want to optimize for their roles, that's probably what you do, right? I know I've on occasion given scout squads camo cloaks that I know are going to be hiding in buildings on objectives because I just wanted to make them that extra durable. Um, hint: It didn't work out for the scout squad, anyways, because they're scout squads. <laughs> the The point is, is that I I thought that giving them camel cloaks would make them more survivable, uh, and in one percent of the time, it did make them more survivable. <laughs> the idea, was which for not... ten points, I guess, is fair. Yeah, the idea was not fundamentally <laughs> flawed. It just did not end up being sufficiently effective to it's warrant itself. <laughs> yeah, it, and that's also true for unit sizes too. Um, like, uh, for example, 10 Primaris Intercessors is really, really hard to move off of things, off of objectives, yeah. and, and, because they're just, they're 20 wounds of 3-up armor, save body. So, 
um you know larger units are really good at at uh at um doing those multiple roles so sometimes you might want to have different sized units you might if you have like like three tactical marine squads we'll go back to them even though they're terrible um the one holding the one moving up the board might want to be 10 man strong instead of five man strong because you want them to be a little more survivable mm-hmm. so it doesn't always apply to upgrades it also applies to their model count as well yep mm-hmm. uh, all right uh is there anything else Yep. I think I think we got it. I think we I think we did yeah, good. Yeah, I think it covers the topic pretty well. All right. <laughs> uh, so if you want I don't to feel if you want to uh, email me if you have any questions about the topic, uh, the tournaments, anything else we talked about, or if you just want to email me for a game of chess, if you're a chess aficionado and you're ranked around the one thousand range, which is the starting beginning range, um, <laughs> uh. Email me, frontlinegamingpdpop at gmail.com. You can also communicate with me via Patreon and our Facebook group, patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Every episode, at the end of the episode, we go over all of the questions that the patrons had, uh, and this episode is no exception. So we're going to do that now. Um, First question, Mr. Brandon wants to know, when evaluating the effectiveness of a unit, do you ever compare point costs? For example, my 500, my 400 points took out 600 point of your points, or is this the way of thinking kind of a trap? So I'll, I'll let either of you take that away. I would definitely say good question. that is a trap. That said, it can occasionally be useful because point costs, in theory are an assessment of a unit's total overall value. But this idea of needing to make your points back, like if my 100-point unit does not kill 100 points of models, then it's a waste, is a very bad way of thinking about the game. You're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble because guess what? Holding an objective and winning the game is worth killing zero points. Um, So don't think about how much you killed. Think about what the unit has accomplished, which is typically not measured in point values. Yeah. Shailene, did you want to add anything there? Yeah. It, it, it... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just remind you the 45 points in my backfield that held yeah. me, uh, That's... that got me yeah. like six ITC yes. points over the course yeah, yeah. of a game. Good. That's it, pretty it, efficient trade. And, and if you are one of those players that does you look at things that, like that, because that's how, kind of how I think too, and like resource management and, and stuff like that, um, points versus points. Uh, there are virtual points that go unrecorded, right? So uh, in chess, it's very easy. A queen is worth eight points, a pawn is worth one point, and whoever has the most points should be winning. However, a common term is that a pawn on the seventh rank or a pawn that's about to become a queen is worth like 10 points because not only will it become a queen, but also your opponent has to deal with it and devote resources to dealing with it, which makes that pawn worth more points, even though it's normally a one-point lowly pawn. Right, so in Shailen's case, that forty-five point unit uh, that's getting her six ITC points. Sean already said he would spend five hundred points to hold an objective for the whole game. So guess what? Virtually, that forty-five point unit is probably worth about five hundred points. Now, I'm completely making pulling these numbers up out of nowhere, but you get my point. Um, if a player is willing to spend five hundred points for a unit to do one thing, mm-hmm. it should you should treat it the equivalent in um, in how you should deal with it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so so that's how you should be looking at things too so yes. when, the next time you shoot your castellan at a 45 point unit don't feel too bad as long as you realize that that you know you wiped something out that needed to be dealt with right 
Yeah, if what you're doing is using your Castellan's yes. gun to get you victory uh, and, points, and there have been times when I have shot literally an entire Castellan at a single company commander, you know, just to make sure he's dead. You know, it's mm-hmm. it don't don't be afraid to do that either. Um, but yeah, so yeah, yeah. but if that but, company commander question, dying wins I think, you the I think game, we all can answer it. But to break it down, it is kind of a trap. Um, thinking it, about it in the pure sense of points versus points. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Chris wants to know, I'd be really curious to hear your all's insight on Matthew Alley's Rubric Marine list. We actually just talked about this. He's got two major wins running, so it was his Rubric Marine list that won the second major. Yep. I know you all mentioned it on a previous podcast, but it'd be great to hear more. Chris, I hope we answered your question when we talked about the Rubric Marine list. Um, do, you, do you have any extra insight to add on to the Rubric Marine list? I think we talked about it pretty well. But... Um. Not anything that is going to fit into the ending questions here, no. It's a subject you talk about at length on a, a different forum, but, uh, you know, if you want to hear more about it, maybe we'll chat about it on the, the Patreon Facebook. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so uh, next question, and this is a question that I would love to take. Um, where can I go to get Chaos Cultists at a better price than GW site while still being able to use an ITC tournament. So first off, uh, ITC the ITC doesn't control uh, doesn't have a set standard for models. Um, for example, if the TO will allows you to use third party models, you certainly can. Uh, it depends entirely on your TO. So uh, the there's no f- checklist. Yes. yes, there's no checklist and on the ITC. So it's not an ITC format thing. First. It's a 40k tournament. Question. And also just to interject slightly here, um, I believe all of the frontline gaming tournaments do allow third-party models, uh, just not on the stream. Yeah, you you just have to, so it depends entirely on the tournament um, and your models, um, but if you were attending an official frontline gaming event, this is the policy. You email Reese with pictures of your model, which is contact at frontlinegaming.org or any of the multiple emails we have on our website, <laughs> uh, asking them, hey, or us, hey, is this model okay? We tell you yes or no, and then there's that. But if it's the Las Vegas Open uh, where the GW stream happens, uh, then you should probably bring real models Ooh. with your third-party models uh, in case you end up being on stream. And that's non-negotiable. If you make the top eight at Delvio you need to have those models because you could potentially go on the stream and GW doesn't allow those models on their stream. So, so that's just to keep that in mind. So um, in general, I would probably recommend moving away from third party models, uh, except for pet models or models that you really love, but making entire third party model armies um, is probably something that I'd be like, you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. do uh, if... though. It just, it does depend on how many tournaments you go to and your local area. So the other thing I'm yes. going to point out is you can legally do conversions and finding cheap mm-hmm. guardsmen no, and playing easy. chaos icon um, also, on them is third-party heads hard. or small conversions like that um, are much more easier to fly than actual third-party models, like a full complete model. Kit. But to Big Devil's Advocate, do you really think you're going to get onto the screen? Are you going to be playing top table at LVO? And if you're... <laughs> Don't tell them I'm that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> No no one listened to Sean. All of you beautiful listeners, especially the ones who are giving up to Patreon. <laughs> uh, 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 Pablo, I'm going to disrupt you here. I'm going to jump on Sean's side. <laughs> From a I marketing perspective, remember, if you listen to Chapter time, Tactics, maybe. especially if you donate to the Patreon, you will make those top eights, guys. I believe in you. 
but to answer. <laughs> Uh, no, no. I, from a realistic perspective, as a great eye player, that's, I'm not that's making fair. any okay. stuff. Uh, but to answer this patron's question, um, I believe it's a beautiful time to plug the secondhand shop. Um, mm-hmm. So currently, right now through GW, and this is actually kind of interesting that you're that you're talking about cultists because cultists oh, on GW yeah. are selling for two dollars a model. It's for, you know ten dollars for five, which is actually by GW prices not that bad, yeah. considering how popular the model is. Uh, it's but, not, but 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 I understand that you need like a hundred of them. And Pablo, those are I understand those. So okay, hold on. Those are for mono pose, not any options. Plastic models. I get it. That is not a good price. All right, so so here's what you do if you're looking if you're looking for cultists. Um, you go to, to you can either go to the Frontline Gaming secondhand store where I sell them assembled and sometimes mostly painted for maximum a dollar a model, mm-hmm. right? And that's just the the average flat cultist price. If they're really if they're nicely painted and based, I'll sell them for like one twenty five, maybe even one fifty a model. But I try to never go above. What GW sells mostly because if I sell them at MSRP, you guys will just go to GW because then you can just assemble and paint the model yourself, which is what eighty percent of our the people in our hobby do, right? So that's why I go below MSRP. Um, yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. eBay is probably the best way to go. You can also go to say, the secondhand shop at FrontlineGaming.org and that links to our eBay store um, where you can get all these models. And if you're specifically looking for cultists, Dark Vengeance cultists on eBay right now are flooding the market because Dark Vengeance, that that box set is, it was opened the hell out of because everyone wanted to get into 40k um, before the edition sucked. Uh, also, you know, those models are snap fit, easy models that people don't it, want anymore, right? Hmm. So like the, for example, the Dark Angels Captain that, and that comes in the Dark Vengeance kit, I can't even give away. I've literally had a couple on auction for 99 cents with free shipping and they still haven't sold. <laughs> That's that's a that's a captain for a is, dollar. Is it your experience that's true with the cultists as well, though? Because I actually find they've become so, a lot so harder no. to find, like exactly. even comparatively. So, so the cultists are are first off the cultists are the only thing in the Dark Vengeance kit worth anything. <laughs> period. Um, they they are starting to become harder to find. So in general, the prices on them have moved up from like a buck fifty to a buck to like two bucks a model, which is MSRP, which is bad. However cultists are constantly going on ebay so if you save a search result for 40k cultist dark vengeance or just 40k cultist painted or 40k chaos space marine cultist painted you will you will get new pings like every hour of people listing cultists um including our store uh so so that i would suggest if you want guaranteed you know gw miniatures well not guaranteed obviously we know about china cast and stuff the point is is that if you if you want Cultist models for a dollar each that are more likely serviceable and usable in tournaments, um, especially if you need them quickly for tournaments, eBay is probably your best bet to go. So you'll, you'll get cultist models for a dollar half off, which is great. Mm-hmm. You get a hundred cultists for a hundred bucks. That's that's not much more you can ask for out of a out of a GW model. Anyways, long long answer to a simple question, but I used it to plug the secondhand store so Reese won't get mad. Yeah, no second second hand is a really good way to find that kind of thing. Just to wrap that up. Uh, finally, Tim wants to know how can we make the tactical marine into yes. the marine he was always supposed to be oh, on the table. That's easy. I know the answer to this one. It you it's called Primaris Marines. That's intercessors Ooh. that you're talking about. You, you just take your tactical marine. 
and then and then you cross out the tactical and put Primaris. Yeah. And then there yeah, you, you go. You give him Done. an extra wound and extra attack, and now he actually is like what they were supposed to be. Yeah. Um. But but yeah. To answer your question, Tim. Um. Y- you know, I think that. Yeah. You well, hope James Workshop goes over and repixels the data was elegant and in the right actually. direction. You know, because if you take the three Chaos Space Marine squads, which are arguably in the were in the same boat as Tactical Marines, um, though they are now slightly better. Um, you get the, those extra CPs. I think doing something like that with Space Marine Tactical Marines or, or something akin to that helps. But that is, I agree, a Band-Aid, which I, I, know, I know where you're going, Sean. Mm, I don't think you uh, do. I know that's not a hard fix. I was going to say, the reason that people like uh, Corsair Chaos Space Marines is not because of three CP. That's nice. Um, it's a it, it's a cute little bonus. Gets that makes that battalion worth more. It's because you can tide of traders a unit twenty of them. Well, that also helps a bunch too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Maybe giving a unit, maybe giving units of ten tactical marines a bonus, like plus one to their save, or I don't know, whatever, well, whatever. Maybe they get an extra bolter shot because they're. I, don't, I, I think I don't they, they do, do need a unique special rule uh, because the problem is that a tactical marine is just a bad version of every other unit in that codex. Um, yes. So what they need is something unique. Now, there's a lot of ways yeah. you can do that. The bolter drill tried a little bit. It's obviously not enough, but it's a start. But think about something like give them a superior version of obsec. You know, a mm-hmm. tactical marine unit on an objective holds that objective regardless of enemy units, even if those units have obsec. Suddenly there's some value to tactical marines. Is it enough? I don't know, I haven't tested that out. But the problem is that they're just generic guys who don't actually do anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Give them give them a stratagem, uh, an ability that, that only procs when they have ten or more models, or I don't know, whatever. Hmm. Maybe you're Preferably right. Probably not a stratagem. But, well, I mean, like I just mentioned, like the stratagem for really the Red Corsairs makes them good. Stratagems can be good if they're worthwhile. That's really good. Yeah. 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 A- anyways, so Tim, that's to answer your question. Uh, that's how you would do it. Uh, although I think uh, uh, from the ground rework up might be the better option. But you know, you could definitely add some rules in there to make them better uh and that is it there's not a whole lot of questions this week i I, i'm sorry patrons i did put the questions up a little later than i normally do um uh and then uh, i believe also there was uh a lot of uh you know people who've who've just finished whaling for the last six weeks every sunday night um a little bit of a hangover there monday morning (laughs) i was a game of thrones reference guys to uh to um uh we'll call it a controversial season <laughs> yeah that's putting it mildly <laughs> <laughs> uh all right guys so that's the episode um uh always remember to always remember to uh comment like subscribe on youtube comment in the frontline gaming section go to frontlinegaming.org to buy all that awesome stuff also if you liked shaylin and sean check them out at in the finest hour yeah either on podbean or on a number of the other subscription in the finest uh, hour podcast services as well as we we post our episodes to frontline as well so you can listen to them there if you want
Yeah. Uh, and then um, another thing I didn't actually I mention, I said we were going to mm-hmm. talk about, but we never actually did, uh, was the uh, Frontline Gaming. We have a lot of cool articles on Frontline Gaming that people still occasionally will come up to me like, wow, you guys have interesting articles online. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out to Mr. Salty John, who wrote a good editorial, uh, 10 Players Who Could Win the Bay Area Open. Sean, sorry, you weren't I wasn't expecting to be. However... However, um, you can be a dark horse candidate. You are my dark horse candidate. Yeah, we'll see. We'll uh, see. But uh, uh, the reason why. <laughs> you know That's what I'm great. voting for? Find I'm voting for the Green Knight underdog because BAO, I have nothing to lose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, Probably going to get best to Green Knights this year because I'm not going to steal it is from Because you. he actually goes into. Um, each of these players that he predicts that could win the BAO and then kind of does a little bio of them. Uh, and this is something that I've done in the past for like the LBO top eights and things like that, but it's widely not used or not done a lot, right? Like, especially on like the big platforms, right? Um, and it's something that's strange because, you know, you, you always see like all the time, like in sports and in, in esports and whatnot, you always see like top 10 mid players or top 10 best players of the year or whatever, right? And they're always comparing and they even get like bad. They get like, oh, I don't like this player because he has short arms and, and he's slow or, you know, like, like he gets kind of, you know, uh, outbursty on Twitter. So he's kind of a, a high, high risk player to draft, you know, whatever, whatever things they, they actually get like really personal and really mean. Um, and I'm not saying that we should do that as a community. Uh, but I feel like whenever I wrote about players that there was this kind of like, like, uh, like it was kind of like a faux pas, like writing about these players. Um, and every little inaccuracy said, like, like they would reach out to me and be like, Hey, you actually got this wrong. Like this bothered me. So-and-so, um, and so I like to see articles like, like this that, that come out and do it correctly with the stats, with everything else, um, and, you know, just kind of highlight these players and their achievements because uh, as I've been talking about for the last three years, it really is the player, not the list, right? So there actually are good 40k players that deserve to be recognized for their hard work mm-hmm. because they are just simply better at the game than, than us. Yeah, right? John is really good about... He's the general us because, yeah. I was saying, John is really good about... Good. Uh knowing the 40k personalities and kind of having a, a good handle on the yeah. community like that so i think he's a kind of a natural for writing an article like that yeah uh, all right that is it guys thank you all so much for all the love and support mm-hmm. and emails uh as always this has been chapter tactics and have a good one <laughs>